My name is John O'Keefe. I am the director of the Brueggemann Center for Dialogue at Xavier University in Cincinnati. And this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from Axe and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Soholt. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to The Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. So, John, what what got you into movie making? Because that's not an industry that, you know, everyone's in, especially when you're in the Midwest. Right. It's kind of a long story, so I will try to tell you the short version of it. And if I go on too long, you know, just kind of interrupt me. <laughs> Um, I just said that I was the, in the introduction that I was a director of a center at Xavier University in Cincinnati, but for my whole career, really, until like two weeks ago, I was at Creighton University in Omaha, and um, I was a, a professor of theology, and, um, you know, I taught, you know, my, I was basically trained in the study of ancient Christianity, which... Um, the first 500 years of Christian history was, was my specialization. And that's what I taught for years. Um, but really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, that is fascinating. But along the way, I, there was a, a moment, I think it was in 2007. I was asked to teach in our study abroad program in the Dominican Republic. Creighton has a program down there. And I was, I was supposed to teach this core class on what's called Christology, which is, the history of what the Christian tradition has said about Jesus and how people have understood him. And I was thinking, you know, these students are, you know, they're working with the poorest of the poor. They're, they're out in the rural areas of the Dominican Republic doing service work. And I thought, yeah, this class is going to be so irrelevant to them. You know, how can I make it more relevant? Yeah. And I was, had always been into photography and I did a lot of little home movie stuff and, so at the last minute when I was packing, I just threw my video camera in in uh, my bag. And iMovie had just come out on on Apple computers. And I thought, whoa, you know... Whoa, what, what, what year are we talking about? Uh, this was like 2007. Okay. And maybe iMovie was before that, but I became aware of iMovie. And um, I had edited a home movie on iMovie and thought it was kind of fun. And so I threw the camera in and I thought, I'll have the students do some kind of video project. And I, you know, I didn't really know what that was going to be. And we ended up doing a, what I would now call a montage video with music. And it was very sentimental. And in many ways it was quite lovely and they, they really invested their hearts into it. And it did achieve my goal of actually making the class more accessible, but it kind of lit up. Mm. It kind of got me interested in doing more media stuff. And I was also already, I mentioned when we were chatting before the show, I was already running a podcast. My colleague and I, since retired, started a podcast back in the early 2000s. Um, the, the, the novel, wow. the novel, novel yeah. Da Vinci Code had come out. That's how I remember when we started. Because our wow. first podcast. So Kent and I kind of determined that you started the first ever podcast, basically. Well, it was, it was pretty early. It was, one of the, it was certainly the first podcast on Catholic stuff, or one of the first. And, um, you know, we, we, uh, just, we were actually making it up as we went, went along because podcasts were super new and, um, <laughs> we just kept yeah. at it and we ended up doing that for like 12, 13, 14 years. And we did like 500 shows. Wow. And what was your response? Like, like people really enjoyed it? Or, I think that our or, peak, we had like 20,000 downloads a week. Oh, my or, or a month. I know oh, we crossed over a million downloads. I know that. So it was pretty popular. And um, and then along the way, I got more and more interested in media and I had a sabbatical and it's this is getting too long. But I ended up getting a, a position at Creighton that gave me some resources and I had a sabbatical and resources. So I took some classes in documentary filmmaking down at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. 
And that sort of lit a fire under me. And then I started reaching out to our journalism and media people. And we created a program, a student filmmaking project called Backpack Journalism, that we ended up doing six films with them in different parts of the world, in Africa and Alaska, at the Arizona border. And then I was sort of honing my own skills as a filmmaker along the way. So it was a, it was kind of a long journey, I think, from, say, it started really, though, in, in uh, 2007. Man, I, I, that's a cool journey. I still can't get over the fact that you stopped a podcast that was getting 20,000 downloads a week at one point. That's why, why did you stop? Well, it, we were doing it for a long time, and um, oh, my, colleague, my colleague retired, and I, I did it with her. And so it just didn't feel the same without her there. And, you know, it, it was just at the, before it was easier to do. We could have, now it would have been easy to do remote stuff like we're doing right now. But yeah. when we were doing it, you know, there was, trying to do a remote interview was just so bad. And so yeah. we did almost everything in the studio. And, and then I didn't really have, I, I sort of honestly just sort of lost interest in doing it. And I, it seemed like it had run its course. So the whole thing is archived at Creighton. You know, people still listen to it. But it, was, it just became something I wasn't going to do anymore. Was it like a really in-depth, like historical or, or theological, you know, very heady? Or was it more experiential and, and um, you were chatting with regular people? Or, or what, what was the podcast about? I know we're like way off course from Prairie, but I'm fascinated. Well, one thing that's happened in podcasts recently is, you know, the long form podcast has become pretty popular. Um, but mm-hmm. what we did was a short, it was a short podcast. Our shows were about 20, 25 minutes. Um, okay. and they, they ranged from fairly, you know, dense theological topics to less dense stuff, you know? So it was a wide ranging stuff. It was just Catholic stuff. And, yeah. and we called it Catholic comments. Um, mm. yeah. That's fun. I've been listening yeah, to... interesting. I mean, most of our listeners, I think, know that uh, Kent and I are both Christians, and I've been listening to The Bible Project, and they can get really heady and uh, in-depth, that podcast. But I, I've i also, Kent, we need to make a note of this. I've been thinking about doing some shorter podcasts because 25 minutes feels perfect for a drive. You know, you got a 30-minute yeah. drive, 25-minute podcast. You got Unless you're trying drive. to stay awake at night, you know, then it's, uh, yeah. you, you need that, you need that uh, blood racing heart pumping content for like three hours to get you home. Yeah. That's why, that's why people are addicted <laughs> to those murder mystery podcasts. That's right. That that's make right. You jump. Oh my goodness. We now, used to now John, John, I don't know if you knew this, but we actually have a good friend that's been on our podcast uh, multiple times. His name is Taylor Keen, uh, who is a, a business professor at Creighton. Did you ever cross paths with Taylor? I'm sure it's a big school, but oh yeah, ma- many times. Um, I mean, I know Taylor, I don't know him well, um, but okay. yeah, cool. we've, we've, uh, I've known him for a long time and, and we've crossed past on a number of occasions. I even tried to grow some of his sacred corn, um, on my, oh, that's on awesome. my property once, but we had a big, uh, a big thunderstorm one day that wiped it out. So that was, oh. that was a sad day. Oh. Man. Yeah. Cause I was, you know, towards the end of the movie where you, where you're talking about, uh, and, and by the way, I guess people, we didn't probably describe this. Uh, John developed a movie that I saw online. That's why we invited him on the podcast at the last prairie it's about the sand uh prairies of nebraska you know just tons and tons of acres and i was uh, you know you give a native american perspective to the geographic location and i was like man i bet this guy would love talking to taylor keen but it sounds like you have <laughs> so i did talk it. to taylor during when i was working on that project you know just about trying to get some sense of because I didn't really mm-hmm. have any point of entry into the native community, and in the the sand hills. You said sand prairie, but it's a the actual sand hills, is yes. the, is the name of the prairie. And um, the you know, so he I just talked to him as a way to kind of start doing some background reading and things like that. As as I was trying to develop some leads out there, and I believe Taylor is Omaha nation mm-hmm. yes. well yeah. and he's yep. two right Ken? he's he's, yeah, double he's omaha and cherokee yep yep, yep. so yeah, his dad is from uh the cherokee, cherokee tribe and his mom is from the omaha right and the sandhills is 
at least in more recent history, the domain of the Sioux, the Ogallala Sioux. Mm-hmm. Right. And the and the Pawnee. And I, I tried to get entry into both of those communities. And the one that worked out was the the Rosebud uh, people. Man. People from oh. the Rosebud Reservation. Something that you did really, really well in that movie, and, and this is what actually caught me, was you just got really regular people and talked to them and their responses felt so genuine and I I could almost and I grew up to the closest thing in Iowa to the Sand Hill Prairies I grew up on a prairie farm and yet I knew that there was a big gap between what those farmers were doing and how we are living in our region and yet I felt like I almost was there it was like part of my soul was there I had this haunting experience watching that and and um and it's not like it's not like national geographic where every two minutes is something really intense like some bug eating another bug it's a lot slower calmer paced and i actually normally hate that uh and i loved every second of it it was just so it like evoked this response in me and i was like i've got to reach out to this guy because uh yeah, I was just shocked how good of an emotional response you uh, did. My brother actually works in movies. He He's on a movie set right now as a, a production coordinator. And uh, he said the best movies evoke strong response, whether good or bad or scary. They just evoke strong response. And you did a really good job. What, what were you going for? Like, what Did you have a thesis statement that you were shooting for when you were doing that movie? Yeah, that I, that's a... And actually, it's a hard question to answer because it, it took me a long time to find my way into the into that story. And so, if mm. you know, from start to finish, that project took me five years from the wow. first the first time I actually thought of it, and to when I actually finished the editing was five years. Now, the actual production phase when I began shooting was more like four. But I went out there, you know, I, didn't, you know, it, I mean, basically, I, I had to start by just talking to a lot of people. And then eventually they started telling me the story. So it, it just mm. took a while to alert to meet people and uh, to, to get them to trust me enough to let me interview them. And I, I like to find also you know, there are ordinary people in that film, but there are also some quirky people. You know, I like to find people like that. Mm-hmm. But I'm a theologian, so I, I think the in the back of my mind there is this idea of contemplation, um, in the Christian tradition, which it goes with meditation and just being silent and present, mm-hmm. and and so that idea of creating a contemplative space, uh, was part of what I was going for. So to mm-hmm. a lot of long holds on shots, and you know it's not this fast paced stuff that is really a la mode right now, as you mentioned it. And that was by, that was on purpose um, because I was going, I was trying to, I was trying to evoke emotion um, in the mm. storytelling. Yeah. It, it And you did, you know, when I watched it, I watched it at like one thirty in the afternoon when I was supposed to be working. And, and even with all the hustle and bustle going on around me, it, it still was striking. Uh, but that makes a lot of sense. The, contemplative because i felt like the whole time you know that giant 300 year old tree that you show in the movie um i felt like the whole time i was sitting under that tree with the movie like on a laptop on my lap and i was alone just under that tree and this fascinating people if, if you get a chance john is there a way that people can watch it i know I had a hard time finding it. I don't know if it's on any streaming services. Yeah, I, you know, this, I, I knew you were going to ask me that question. And I honestly, I'm a theologian, I'm a college professor, and I make, I, I've learned how to become a filmmaker. But the one thing I really don't have any idea what to do is how to market my stuff. So <laughs> I'm, I'm actually trying to figure out how to make this film available. And, you know, I, and I just moved too. So I moved from Omaha to Cincinnati at the end of May. And then I went to uh, to Ireland for two weeks, and then um, then we went to Vermont, and we had a burial service for my parents. And so th- mm. finally, I'm just sort of mm. settling in here. And so I'm thinking, all right, in the next two weeks, I have got to move forward on 
figuring out how to make this thing available, even if it's just a, you know, like I put a five dollar paywall on it or something. I I don't know. Yeah. So I'm you gonna. Should. Yeah. You, yeah, you absolutely you should. should. It's good. It's good stuff. You know, uh, as far as the emotional connection side of the film, I mean, I understood. You know, I could I could relate to, uh, especially what the young woman who was I think she was a college student at the time when you put the film together she was working uh, I assume on her father's uh, ranch out there in the sand hills and you know just the way she was describing how uh, she's like there's no radio in here so sometimes I just sing while I'm driving other times I just look around watch the wildlife which then kind of leads to you know that that contemplative mindset that you talked about john and then and nick was was connecting to as well and then you know uh, she's like and then sometimes i just talk to jesus and talk about what it is i'm seeing and so i could i certainly uh connected with that as well because i've i've experienced that and not just in prairie you know i mean how can how can one gaze upon the rocky mountains and not have a, a similar response or how can one you know stand on uh you know the rocky shores of of the new england seacoast and and not have a similar response but the other the other part of it that really struck me was the connection with um harney's descendant um, yeah. i don't remember his name in the in the film and his total dealing with who he is based on his ancestry where he lives now who his ancestors had such a negative uh uh interaction treatment mistreatment of and how he has worked to to try and make amends and try and become a neighbor with uh the descendants of the native peoples that were so you know terribly treated by his you know ancestor by his direct ancestor yeah that right. was that was that was that was a powerful part of the film can, can you explain just like how you navigated all of all of that because that had to be hard as uh you know the film producer right so i i was um my first point of entry out there was the ranching family, the Vintons, because mm -hmm. I have a colleague at Creighton in the biology department who grew up on the ranch where we filmed. And okay. so the, the, uh, the rancher Paul Vinton is her brother. So she okay. kind of brokered that relationship. And she and another colleague, Jay Leiter at Creighton, the three of us were working on a joint project out in the Sandhills. And my piece of it was to make this film. Um, but even with that help, uh, it took me a long time to learn how to speak rancher, speak rancher, really. I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a way of thinking, a way of proceeding, a way of approaching the world that it's really alien to a city person, even a city person from Omaha. And I'm originally from New York, New York state. So I, I had a lot of work to do to just to understand that. And then, as the more I worked on the project, the it, it gradually dawned on me that the main character in the film had to be the grassland itself. And mm -hmm. so I was trying to say, okay, if the when I asked myself if this prairie were speaking, what stories would it tell me? And so, mm -hmm. so I had three. This the two stories I was working on first was one the rancher's story. And then the the perspective of say e e ecologists like uh, Chris Helzer, and the folks who go out there and study the biodiversity, and th so the scientific community. Yeah. But I, I realized that well, there's this prior history of native people, right? And and so once I realized that I, I needed to hear what they had to say too, um, it took me an, at least a year or two find those folks talk to those folks and and then to integrate it into the so you have these like three three basic narratives that are running throughout the the film 
Hmm. Yeah. Man, that's I really I really like that. The land is the main character and and what is it saying and and you found some really major things and I love the part where they said uh some some a lot of healing has happened on this land. And uh I think that's a really good narrative and example to run with in lots and lots of cases and uh land all around, you know, the world. That'd be I think you set a really cool precedent or recorded a really cool precedent in that area. But the, something I I want to ask people that make something creative, right? We we have our own questions that pop into our mind, but as the producer and the the mind behind it, what is a question that you wish people would ask you about the film that you really want to answer or you really want to share about? Oh, man. Um yeah, I mean, in some ways, you know, why did I, you know, why did I want feel like I had to make this particular film? I think is a question I'd want people to to mm. ask me. And then, what do I want them to get out of it? And mm. and on, the, on one hand, I like I'd like to say people get out of things whatever they get out of it. And um, but you know, I had a particular reason for making it, and then I have some hopes about what the emotional response might evoke in people. I guess so those were, you said one question, I, but I gave you two. Yeah, yeah. no, no those, those are great. great. What, 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 um, what, what are the answers well, to those kind of, questions? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, the, the, I think a lot of people who do artistic projects like, like this, they, they will report feeling like it picked them. And, mm. um, I, I I just wrote an essay and I it's published just was recently published in the journal Great Plains Research, um, and it narrates a little bit how I first found the Sandhills. It was back in the late 1990s when I first moved to Nebraska, and I, my family and I took a vacation out to uh, Fort Robinson, and on the way back we ended up crossing the Sandhills by accident. And I thought, wow, that place is amazing. I I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I mm. thought, you know, I need to go back there. I need to come back here someday. But, you know, I, I had little kids. And, I mean, it was like 20 years went by before I went back there. And um, and I went back there because I, I had been, I mentioned earlier that I had been working with students making films in East Africa, um, made a film in Alaska, down in the U.S.-Mexico border. And, I, and I'm, I'm an environmental person. I thought, you know, I need to a film project that I can get to without flying across an ocean. And and so then I remembered the Sandhills and the second that thought entered my mind, I felt like this project has got to get finished. And so I felt like I couldn't resist it. So, uh, mm. yeah, it's not like I had some list of pros and cons. It was like I just had to do it. Yeah. Um, so that's the why did I make it? And then the the. What I'm hoping for is I think that we live in a civilization where people are increasingly alienated from the world and we don't have any sense of participation in nature or any real awareness of our, how connected we are and how much we rely on it. And that we, we, yeah. we live in this delusion that we can live without the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and we think our food comes from Hy-Vee or... You know that we we have no sense of our food supply. We have no sense of environmental limits. We have no sense that that there is a kinship with the world that used to guide human life for generations and generations that we have completely lost, and mm-hmm. that maybe we could begin to recover. That yeah, that is very well said. Wow. There's, yeah, I, I, we we totally agree with that, John. I mean, that is that's something we talk about all the time on this show. Is is the need for that and the need the need to reestablish that, not just in you know the handful of people that end up listening to shows like this or catching the film, but we need to that needs to become like a major part of what it means to be a human again. Yeah, I yeah. I agree. I mean, and I think there are signs of this everywhere. Uh, all over the world, all happening all at once. And it, it's a, so 
I by no means am, am innovative here. I think I'm just responding to the zeitgeist in, in some ways. But mm-hmm. um, it's just a question of when does this get, or will it get to be strong enough in the consciousness of, of humans to make a difference in the, and, and, and help us correct the course that we're on right now, which is yeah. not mm-hmm. good. Yeah, that's that's what our our whole slogan is: conservation happens one mind at a time. Because it's got to, it's got to come through, and enough people have to care about it, you know, in their minds to uh, um, to start influencing uh, or have having mass influence. And that's uh, that's kind of what we're going for. That's why I think what you were doing with the film was just absolutely brilliant. I was listening to a podcast with a English speaking or an English accent so i wanted to say like it was just bloody brilliant um <laughs> but and, and something that i think is hilarious and uh really sorry if it's not funny to anybody else but uh so i've been in the film world and, and been on movie sets and uh i feel like there's two kinds of movie producers there's like the kind of producer or director that's like so creative that they don't set an alarm and they like you know Maybe they're a little crunchy. They don't take showers. They sit around waiting for inspiration, uh, you know, and they've kind of like built their personality around that. It's pretty cool. I've seen them work really, really well on films. And then there's the other kind that's like very methodical and kind of, uh, you know, basically does movies uh, with a checklist. And uh, out of the two, I have a guess, but out of the two of those, what do you feel like you resonate with more? And I guess if you want to make a third option, you can. I'm not trying to. John, you could you could really make Nick sweat here uh, by saying which of the two do you think does he think you are? <laughs> oh man! <laughs> well, here's the deal. You told us before this that you coded part of the program for people to listen to your podcast on. So I am for sure guessing right brain or left brained. Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a little weird that way. I um have an strange like i could code html in the early 2000s you know not easily wow. but i could do it but it was easier then and then when they invented cascading style sheets and the and the internet it became super prof- professionalized and and the coding got really more hardcore than i just i couldn't i i lost interest because it moved beyond me and I, I don't really have much of a mathematical brain. And I, I did that just because I wanted to have websites. And, you know, hmm. and I, I, um, I, I was a professor at Creighton when the first internet web browser dropped, right? And so I, I feel like I grew up with the internet in that, in that sense professionally. But I remember downloading... I think it was called Netscape, and uh, yeah, Netscape actually, Navigator. Before that, there was one called was. Mozilla, which was really just and nobody knew what it did, and and I I ran a web server on my 12 megahertz Macintosh, you know, to try to publish web pages. So, you know, it was really fun back then, you know, and you could do stuff like that. If I were if I were coming up right now, I wouldn't I wouldn't code my own stuff because it's too complicated and. So I use like Squarespace now for my own website. Um, so I think mm-hmm. I'm a little more on the um, toward the less programmed analytical, you know, more wake up in the morning and see where the wind is blowing. But so if you're saying I'm wrong, then we might we'll just edit that part out. Don't worry about it. <laughs> well, I mean, I can see why you would think that, right? Because I have a technical geeky side, but I also have this sort of listen to the muse side that. Uh, but but that said, you can't finish a project like this without actually being a little bit. I got to do this this day. You know, you got to plan ahead. Yeah. You got you got to yeah. you got to line people up. You got to hire people. You got to have a shooting schedule. I mean, it's not like these mm-hmm. things just happen when you roll out of bed and and on a whim and drive out to the Sandhills. I mean, it, it took a lot of effort to get all that footage. And to find people who were willing to talk to me and then find the time to do it. And, you know, it's, it's a long drive from Omaha to um, Western Nebraska. So, you know. yeah. So, yeah, I guess I would, I'd be in between those, those, I would say. All right. 
I'll take that. Mm. Uh, 50%, I guess, is still failing. But uh, <laughs> So no. of everyone that you were hanging out with, um, that you were interviewing, specifically the people that we could see, what were your favorite – I'm not asking you who were your favorite people, but what were your favorite interviews? Um, my favorite – my favorite interview was the the here a couple of favorite interviews was um steve the um the naturalist who opens at the beginning of the film and yeah you know, he's kind of prominent mm-hmm. and uh you know he just he he insisted that the only place he would do the interview is in the sand hills and i'm like but dude it could be windy you know i mean it, the audio would yeah and, and he's like, then I won't do it, you know. And so we just waited for a day and met out there. And, you know, he, there he is kneeling in the switchgrass, you know. And uh, that was fun. And and my favorite interview when it was when I had my former student, Nico Sandy, with me. Because um, I had some money and I was able to hire him to help me do the critical interviews. And we just, you know, he was so, so fun to work with. Um, I also loved interviewing Becca uh, Winbach. Um, the the massage therapist from Mullen. Yeah, she was oh, yeah, so yeah. fun. She was talking about it. She, like, oh, I just let my kids out. It, she was just fun, and uh, it was really, really satisfying to interview her. Uh, the other ones, I all I enjoyed them all, but they all had in their own different ways uh, challenges. Um, where those two interviews were really just sort of hanging out and felt really relaxed. Yeah, yeah, that that's really I. So the the um, the gentleman Steve at the beginning, he was a guy. While I was watching, I was like, I'd love to talk to this guy because the people who have really heady knowledge but have really exercised um, walking legs, you know, in prairie, those are the just the best prairie people to talk to. Well, you should call him up. He'd come on your show, and he actually has a book called The Last Prairie, and I stole the title from him. I mean, with his permi- mm. with his permission, you know, I I had a different title when I when I had the rough cut, and one of my I screened it to a friend who's a screenwriter, and he said, John, you know, this this is great, but you need a different title, and you know, the title is right in front of your nose, um, and so I thought, well, I had been avoiding that title because Steve had it in his book, but yeah. you know, I think it works really well, but Steve would come oh, on your yeah. show. Yeah, we we should definitely get Steve on there. You know, something else that Steve said, Nick, I don't know if you uh caught this in the film or not, but uh he he mentioned uh uh sand blue stem. Yeah. Uh, when he was talking when he's talking about he's like, you know, everyone knows a big blue stem and little blue stem, but you know, I pres- I give you sand blue stem, you know. <laughs> and yeah. I was, I'd never heard of that, but it was that was really interesting. He's like a true you know, like mixed short grass uh, species that was that was thrown in there. Yeah, I that, actually, that I actually half wonder if some biologist is going to challenge that, but no one ever has. So, because um, I'd never heard of it either. Yeah, yeah, that was that was cool, and maybe you know, maybe it's like local, you know, like a almost a nickname or something like that. But but even still, you know, I think some of those nicknames. Well, here's here's the perfect example. You know, what was it like five years ago when uh, taxonomists uh, said, you know what? There's no such thing as a brown bear. They're they're all grizzlies. And, uh, you know, that brings up the whole they call it lumpers and splitters. You know, lumpers want to put everything into the the bigger category. Splitters want to split hairs and get down to, you know, these are all like slightly different species or subspecies. I'm for sure a lumper. There's just yes, you are very much grass. So. <laughs> but uh, but you know, you talk to an Alaskan who's got both, and they'll tell you there is a very distinct difference between a coastal brown bear and a interior grizzly. You know, they'll say those those are two different animals, um, and and I so and I think people like that that are living around this stuff they should be listened so listen to so. Uh, you know what? If if the guy who's out there interacting with it all the time calls it sand blue stem, that's good enough for me. Uh, I think that's uh, I think it's cool that he noticed the the difference there. At least even if it's just you know height, which was the main thing he was focused on. But but well, uh, isn't it like a root issue? Because like the 
I thought it had something to do with either a moisture or a root issue. Yeah, it could be. I I may have missed that part. I don't think I he. he was, I don't know that he. I don't know that he said. Um, and you know, I I try to learn the name of some of the plants, and I'm not very good at it. You know, I can I can recognize blue stem and big blue stem and little blue stem and switchgrass and Indian grass and and you know every time I go my list gets longer. Um, but you know, I'm not really. My mind does not work like a like a like a. Um, a biologist and I'm not like Marianne, my colleague, she, you know, would come home every day with her make notes and identify the plants and species and all that stuff. And which is great. And, you know, Steve, uh, Steve is more of a naturalist, right? So he's not a, he's not like doing hardcore biology, but he has a vast knowledge of species and birds and, and all that stuff. So, but I didn't want the film to get, you know, I didn't want see one thing I was trying to do also was I didn't want to make a film about cowboys and I didn't yeah. want to make a film about uh, environmentalists calling for you know, it, you know at the yeah. big, there every there's kind of a a, a, a trope almost like like in, in nature films like here's nature look how bad it's going everything's falling apart and look how much humans suck right um yeah. and you know, there's part of me that's like, yeah, we're, we are causing this, but at the same time, we're, we have to live here and we live in landscapes Mm -hmm. and we can't just have, we can't save the world by sequestering, you know, remnants. Um, We've got to find a way to, to learn to live with other beings. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, sequester the remnants, yes, and save them. But at the same time, you know, why not convert all of our lawns and Des Moines to uh, prairie? That's what yeah. we're trying to do, John. <laughs> we're trying yeah, to. Yeah, that is, that is very well said. And that's something that we, I think we can be guilty of at times, Nick, on this podcast, especially myself, um, where we can get so caught up in just finding the faults and, you know, identifying the problems. And, uh, but there's got to be a, a not only a solution but a realistic solution, something that still allows for for use and and uh, preservation, you know. And um, I think you're exactly right, John. I think uh, there's there's so often, you know, I think that trope they call it a B movie. <laughs> so someone's going to invite me over to show me a B movie, and I've definitely been guilty of that. Um, but but. Uh, uh, it's true. We got to have something that shows, yeah, we can, we can still use it and interact with it. The key is that we don't abuse it. And, and um, yeah, I, I, I 100% agree with you. You know, Nick, I don't remember who it was that said this. I want to, I want to say it was Tabitha, Tabitha Panis, president of Iowa Prairie Network. Um, Nick, oftentimes, so this is your little, uh, this is your little uh, warning, your fair warning here, John. Nick's probably going to ask you this before we uh, wrap this one up. But he oftentimes uh, asks, uh, if you could snap your fingers, um, you know, what, what is one thing that you would change? And, and I think it was Tabitha, but I might be wrong, Nicholas, so you can, you can uh, correct me here. But they said, I wish every person could go stand in a prairie because uh, once you're in a prairie, you want, you, you quickly start to realize, and I think it, it doesn't come all at once. I think as you wade into the prairie and imagine this probably happened to you when you visit, when you went back to the sand hills and actually got out and started interacting with it and wading into the prairie with Steve, um, it kind of hits you in waves. You just start seeing more and more and more species. You know, the closer you look, the more you see, it's like a microscope coming into focus, you know, and, um, that impact starts to wash over you as you stand there and you're in it as opposed to flying over it, flying by it on the interstate or, um, reading about it in a book or even you know hearing about it on a podcast or seeing it in a film, when you are in it, you kind of start to get it. Would you agree with that? And and if so, did that happen to you when you finally went and and went back to the Sandhills? Oh oh yeah. I mean, I I would say that prairies have become 
perhaps my favorite landscape. Wow. Um, I just love being in the prairie. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I moved here for all kinds of reasons, but um, my heart is still out there, man. I, I, um, I love the mountains. I go to Colorado. I love hiking. You know, we do a lot of hiking in the East Coast. Um, we were just hiking up in New Hampshire. It's all beautiful, but there's something about that vast open landscape with all of these plants and and just this giant dome of sky that it's mm-hmm. kind of overwhelming. And I do think people... You, you you really have to walk out into it and take time to allow it to sink in. Um, but most people, they just drive past and don't even see it. Um, but it's, a, and, and I guess if I could change one thing, there would be more of them to be in, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. one of the reasons people don't appreciate them is they're increasingly impossible to be in them. And I've been reading, do you know Connie Mutel's work? Cornelia Mutel. Yep. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, attending, attending Iowa's land. Yeah. And um, we've been reading um, The Emerald Horizon. Oh, and because yeah. um, I have a film project about Iowa that I hope we'll see the light of day. But, um, you know, just the amount of loss in Iowa is so sad to think about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, you know, a friend of mine posted on Facebook recently. You know, she just posted, do you ever grieve the loss of the prairie? And I'm like, yeah, I, I do. I mean, it's it's grief worthy. It's terribly sad. Um, and uh, so if we could get more people to love it, then the work of restoration would accelerate. Yeah. Man. Yeah, very well said. Very well That's, said. Who did I, I? I think that was Tabitha's whole point, which kind of brings us back around is, was that when people experience prairie, they care about it. When they care about prairie, they'll preserve it, you know, or uh, mm-hmm. work more towards conservation. And and uh, that's a really that's a really good one. The experience prairie. I, another, and actually, that this would add with it. I asked one gentleman like what uh, what he believed gets people to change, and and he was a prairie you know expert, and he said suffering. He said, "When people start suffering, then they change. And mm. and if people could experience prairie and then realize it's all gone, and then grieve it, I think that grief would actually be enough suffering to change, to lead to change." Yeah, there. You know, um, Alo Leopold, the Sand County Almanac. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, <laughs> yes, that's sir. that's his. That's sort of his thing, right? Where you only grieve what you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you can grieve one yeah. place, you can grieve others, right? So I, I, one possible point of entry is if people can identify the losses in their own um, ecoregion, because every bioregion on earth is suffering right now, um, yes. then you can vicariously extend that to others. There's a really wonderful mm-hmm. theolo- theology book called... Um, blue sapphire of the mind and uh the guy really walks through the process of grief as the gateway to change and 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 so you know to really have meaningful environmental change and ecological change we have to first grieve the losses and i i sometimes worry that people coming of age have so have no experience of what used to be that they won't grieve it yeah Mm mm-hmm yeah, you know, it's th- sorry, Ken. Oh, this is so so. You know, I think it'd be crazy not to tap into some of of John's uh, expertise in, on theological issues. So I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here. Just it kind of jumped into my mind when you were, you were talking about that. We oftentimes, uh, and even speaking of Leopold, he he was the one who coined the phrase uh, an Abrahamic view on uh, creation or on nature. Uh, I think I can't remember exactly how he he worded it, and people reference uh, the the verses in Genesis that talk about um, you know d- dominion and uh, subduing uh, the land. What would be like? Obviously, there there must be folks out there who who have taken 
that part of uh, the Bible and applied it to almost this, uh, this, uh, you know, made it, made it make way for them to uh, exploit, um, overuse, maybe even we could use the word abuse uh, nature. What would be a more accurate understanding of, of those passages? (laughs) Um, That's a really big question. Um, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. It's okay. But you know, it's got four minutes. minutes, So (laughs) it comes, it comes up all the time. And, uh, and it, 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 you know, if, if you, if you study the history of Christian thought, as I have the, there's, there's a consistent uh, fascination with creation and the cosmos. And, but it, it really ultimately is a question of humans, you know, becoming whatever happened to us genetically, we became at some point, we got this consciousness and became aware that we exist in a universe. And, um, and then, and so the question is, what is our actual place in the universe? And the, it, 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 the, those passages from Genesis represent ancient Israelite authors wrestling with that question. And, you know, we wrestle with that question when we peer into deep space with our telescopes and, you know, and we have a, so we, there, we're doing the same thing, right? Um, but those ancient authors never thought that humans could destroy the world. It just didn't occur to them. And one of my colleagues at Creighton, who's a Bible scholar, he and I've talked about this a lot. And he said, you know, the, the, the deeper witness of the Old Testament tradition is human weakness and God's majesty. So that God is actually in charge of the world, not humans. And there's a kind of irony to that Genesis narrative where humans think that they're actually going to subdue the world, but they're not. Um, and, and so that there, that's just one possible take. But to to take it as a mandate to, you know, industrial farm prairies out of existence is theologically ludicrous, I, I, would, I would say. Mm-hmm. And there are many, 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 many counter arguments that, you know, if we had another hour, we could talk about. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That Yeah, I'm glad I I'm glad that popped into my mind because you're definitely the guy to ask about that. And it you're right, it comes up a lot. Um I bet I've I bet I've heard it at least a half a dozen times either while doing interviews or listening to other podcasts um in some way shape or form. Yeah, it, the other thing I would say just briefly up. is uh there's a temptation to say, "Oh, it's because this is in Genesis." you know, the subdue of the earth and have dominion. Therefore, the biblical tradition has caused this. But, you know, people in Asia are doing just as much damage to the world as people in, in North America. Uh, so there does seem to be something wrong with humans, right? So it's a human problem, not necessarily a particular tradition of humans. Um, and so there's lots of, anyway, it's complicated, I guess is what I want to leave mm-hmm. the listeners with is, um, yeah. yeah, man, complicated is a good way to say. It. I feel like anything theologically, it's like, well, which of the seventy-four routes would you like me to take with this? Oh, you know, and and um, we appreciate you you uh, taking a stab at it with us, though, because um, I think it's one of those things uh, where faith. So having a faith demands um, not having all the answers. And similar to Jacob in the Old Testament wrestling with God, I, I think it is part of the regular uh, Christian walk to wrestle with unanswered questions while being able to center yourself around a belief. And um, I just being vulnerable here, it I wrestle with that, right? Because I talk to very smart people that I trust a lot um, who have very good evidence as to why... Um, why the earth is way older than the Bible would have you believe. And a lot of times I just have to say, you know, you sound right about the Bible sounds right. I'm going to leave it with that and, and, and not have, uh, for certain answers. And I know that that's not, that's not a good scientific or Christian take, but, um, a big part of this whole journey here. And I know lots of our viewers are Christians is being okay with, um, with not fully understanding. Yeah. Uh, 
And yeah. I would say that um, in the last 20 years, there's been a real revolution in, may, in a lot of Christian denominations toward environmental care. You know, and it, it, the earliest stirrings... In a good way, you mean? In a good way. And, and the earliest stirrings of that were actually came out of a Luther, from a Lutheran theologian named Joseph Sittler, who was one of the first to start sounding mm. the alarm and, and really trying to look at the Christian tradition, you know, straight on and say, here's where it's been weak and here's what, here's what its potential is. And then I'm, I'm Catholic myself. And so, you know, more recently, you know, 10 years now, we have the Pope's encyclical... Laudato Si, which is a, a real attempt to kind of steer the ship of Catholicism in a more environmental direction. So I think within the Christian world itself, there are a lot of signs of hope. And with the, with the Greek Orthodox Church, the leader of that has been very outspoken on environmental stuff. So I, I think there's a lot to be optimistic about uh, within yeah. churches. Even, even some of my like some of my friends that I'm pretty sure would consider themselves non-denominational or um, some sort of Protestant, they're realizing, it, and it took suffering, right? They're realizing, oh, it's not actually as good for my health to um, to partake in some of these things. And they are, you know, the first step is growing a vegetable garden, then it's getting chickens, and then it's realizing, oh, I should have native pollinators to attract insects for my chickens, and then they fall in love, you know? And so all, there's this, like, there's this progression um and it's like a movement kind of happening together or at the same time, but individually. Um, and I'm seeing them, but now I'm seeing them egg each other on on Facebook. And it's just, it's really cool to see. And, and yeah, yeah. there's definitely an eco movement within the evangelical world too. Um, and uh, I don't know, do you know the guy Shane Claiborne and the new monastics and that, that movement? No, no, I, I haven't heard that. that name yeah. I, I mean, he's an evangelical and sure. definitely, kind of an eco twist on evangelical Christianity. Very interesting guy. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, man. Well, John, I'm glad, I, I'm glad I brought that question up. Because, yeah. Uh, it's, it's something that, that, you know, we all have to deal with if, uh, if you're going to be of the Christian faith and it's going to be something you're going to be challenged on by those who aren't. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is real. And, and, you know, there's billions of Christians on earth. And, and so, um, you know, and we don't all agree. You know, some of my some of my uh, people I know that are Christians would say that uh, you know would kind of go like, nope, nope, the Earth's ours to do whatever we want with. And uh, um, I have many words to say about that, but I suppose I should save that for in person instead of cowardly yelling it in general at the public. Um, <laughs> wow, John, I, I was I have, not I, sorry. I have one more. I have one more question for John here, and it's totally unrelated. But I'm just dying to know about it because it seemed so interesting on the film and it really stuck out to me because we just don't see this. And it's something that was so Nick and I were working through a three part series called the prehistoric prairie where we've looked at the arrival of prairie. um, The original prairie people was part two. And then we still have to do part three yet, which is going to be the settlement of the prairie on into today. Um, but one of the things we talk about in there um, a fair bit are the, the water systems of the prairie. And that was, I mean, I think it was the opening scene uh, in in the film is kind of like the sunrise moment with this thunderstorm moving through the background. And um, at the, you see in the bottom this meandering stream. And... You featured the part where they did their net survey on fish in that those prairie streams. Can you just kind of tell us about those prairie streams? Because we we really don't see those anymore. Uh, the streams that we have around us would have probably been, you know, like where I'm at here in Iowa, central Iowa, would have been like that at one time, I'm sure. But they've been channelized by farmers through, you know, the past hundred and 70 years uh they've been you know washed out through tons of erosion from tillage you know upgradient from them and stuff but those streams just look so unique can you kind of just like tell us what you learned about them i'll I'll, I'll talk about iowa in a second um 
there's definitely less water in Iowa than there was, uh, but there was probably never as much water as in the Sandhills uh, because mm-hmm. the Sandhills are on top of the Ogallala Aquifer. And the Ogallala Aquifer is this massive underground lake, essentially. I mean, it's not, it's not like a lake, but it's an underground water source. Somebody told me there's as much water under Nebraska as in all of Lake Huron. And, um, wow. And so in the Sandhills, it's really weird because it's fairly dry and it wouldn't take much of a drought to get these sand dunes moving again. But there's just water everywhere, like natural lakes mm. erupting. And you, there are places where you can like stick a pipe in the ground and water will shoot out. Um, wow. There's lots of groundwater all over the place. And there's quicksand. I mean, it's just a very wet environment. Wow. And, um, and so that aquifer goes all the way down to, to Texas. And in, down in Texas, and as you go north into Kansas, it's been heavily depleted by by agriculture and pumping um, mm-hmm. for center pivot irrigation. Uh, the Sandhills, because it's never been plowed, there's not a lot of pivots. and But it would take a lot to exhaust the aquifer there because it's just so rich of a resource. But um, So that's a unique feature of that particular prairie. And, and there, one of the reasons it's been preserved um, and not pumped so much is just because of the the natural geography of the sandhills you can't actually get plows in mm. there it, it's impossible what, what, what's, what's their, their water quality like so i'm actually oh, doing a different, different series. series it's fantastic I mean, water quality it's beautiful oh, yeah there's man. no it's not it's not polluted by any kind of agribusiness or anything mm. yeah it's pristine it's amazing now iowa on the other hand is you know the watersheds are a nightmare and um Oh, yeah. And Iowa used to be a lot wetter. Like, you had that whole pothole region stretching all the way north into Canada, which just used to be hectares and hectares and millions and millions of acres of wetlands. They're they're all destroyed. Uh, A lot of the destruction came from tiling, you know, Mm -hmm. just intentionally draining the wetlands, reshaping the landscape, draining the water away, forcing it into into streams that become channelized and ditches and then ends up polluting the Mississippi Delta. You know, I was, uh, mm-hmm. I think, a cautionary tale about you know, what humans can do wrong, <laughs> to be honest. Do you, know, yeah. do you know who Chris Jones is, the author of The Swine Republic? No. Oh, man. You got to read that. It's just a series of, of um, they're not scientific. He's a scientist, but the, it's just a series of blogs that he wrote and it's still more scientific than I easily understand, but it's really, really good. Yeah. But yeah. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll send you that series when I come out with it. Cause I'm interviewing him, the state geologist, the watershed for the skunk river coordinator, someone from Lake red rock, which is Iowa's biggest lake and Des Moines waterworks after many emails, I finally got back to me so we're excited about that yeah i heard that um, the des moines water supply is really polluted des moines oh, yeah. well yeah it comes from northwestern iowa and northwestern iowa has like perfect farm ground and and a lot of pigs so it all just runs straight on down but i've got someone we actually work with like the um corps of engineers of sailorville lake and they've been putting in prairie every year for like five or six straight years. There was just one guy That's who was really awesome. passionate about it. And he said their mowing is going down. Their water quality is better. So need to pick his brain on the podcast about it as well. But yeah, water, big deal in Iowa. It's a huge topic. I'm trying to really trying to give everyone a, a fair shake at weighing it. Like even I, I reached out to Iowa corn growers association and, and Iowa pork producers. Um, and yeah, I just want, I want it to be an honest conversation. Right, I don't want right. to just rag on, you know. So. Yeah, no, I think that's a good way to go. So, man, John, I I mean, I was heavily and wonderfully surprised how good your movie was. Thank you. And um, meeting you has, uh, I, I tend to believe that what people have inside of them, they replicate outside of them. That's a lesson for all of you folks listening. If your life is chaotic, there's only one common denominator. Uh but uh, oh, every every interaction, <laughs> hey man, I'm just here to help people. Uh, every interaction I've, I've had with you and and the things you've produced, I, I've 
really appreciated. So thanks so much for coming thanks, on the show. Thanks for inviting me. It's really been fun. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Great conversation. Man, here's the deal. Here's what's going to happen, guys. John's going to tell us when he figures out how to, uh, how to get his movie out. Um, and then, uh, and then we're going to tell you guys, he's going to tell us, we'll make an announcement on the podcast or on our newsletter, whatever we have to do. Um, if you aren't signed up for our newsletter, by the way, hoxynativeseeds.com or theprairiefarm.com, you can sign up for the newsletter there. It's fun. I, people really enjoy it. I, I, we get a really high click rate. And I think that's because we put a lot of fun and funny things on there. Well, what can we do? What can we do, people, to, to help to help uh, save this last prairie? Not that it's necessarily in danger, but to, to maybe grow it. Maybe get some more prairie out there. You guys know what you can do. You can put in Backyard Pollinator. You can share this podcast. You can talk about prairie with your friends. You can visit the Sandhill Prairies. Uh, you can watch John's movie when it's available. Um, because you are important. Your mind is important for conservation. Because conservation happens one mind at a time. Thank you.